Welcome to Health Raisers. Health Raisers don't just survive, together we thrive. I'm your host, Dr. Nadine. So first of all, thank you very much, Seth, for being here. Um, you are, you know, very important to me. You've been um, a virtual mentor <laughs> and I've learned so much from you. So I have with time with this podcast really come to appreciate that it's something that can serve not only my audience, but myself as well. So when I find myself struggling a little bit, I reach out to the people who I with whom I intentionally surround myself and you being one of those people. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about the practice of curiosity. And so I've been reaching out to who I consider my curiosity superheroes in my life. And you are one of those people. So I'd like to begin by talking to you about curiosity in a holistic sense, not just from an intellectual sense where we normally would go with our thinking, but how it serves us in our lives, uh, making us healthier people overall. So my first question to you then would be, what is curiosity to you? What does it mean to you? I think curiosity is the desire to inquire about things that most folks would accept as the status quo. Is it a conscious practice to you or is it part of your lifestyle and relatively unconscious, like a habit? What does consciousness even mean? I think that plenty of brain science confirms what philosophers have known for a few decades, which is that free will is a myth and that voice in our head happens after we decide to do something, not the other way around, which we could talk about all day, but it's not the topic of today's conversation. So given that that's the case, everything we do is unconscious. The question then is, do we make up a story afterwards? And in my case, I have a practice of being curious. And I think it started intuitively when I was young, thanks to my parents and who knows what. But over time, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger lifts weights and I'm curious. That is what I do. Thank you for bringing up your parents because that was something else I was wondering about. Do you, is it something that you consider nature, nurture, a combination thereof? Most things are probably a combination. In my case, I think that I found fertile ground for the curiosity that arrived that arose. Most kids that I've ever met, and I've met a lot of kids, are curious because they have not been indoctrinated into not being curious. And if you are surrounded by enough people who push you to not be curious, it's quite possible you will lose the spark. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, if your peers and your family setting reward you for being curious, it's more likely you will be. What would be your advice to someone who is letting fear get in the way of curiosity. You can't make fear go away. And you know, a great uh, wire walker or trapeze artist will tell you that they still feel fear. The question is, what do you do with it? The same way a marathon runner feels tired. What do you do with it? So if you are confronting fear when it's time to be curious, first thing I would do is explore is that fear helpful? Where did it come from? How do you use it as fuel? How do you use it as a compass? Because 
most of the time, in most settings, the penalty for being quietly curious is very low. That's different than you know snooping around a military installation in the middle of the night because you're curious about what's in there. They might shoot you for that. <laughs> but if you're curious about why this crypto is going up or why that entrepreneur is succeeding or why uh, baking soda and vinegar were mixed together fizz, you can explore the curiosity without a lot of downside. So for those that may be very curious by nature and allow that kind of pull without any guardrails, without any sort of discipline to help rein it in a little bit, how do you, how does one follow through then on projects and not just kind of get lost in the curiosity itself, in the pursuit of it? Right. So the, the curiosity is the first step. It is the kindling. But if we don't ship the work, it's just solipsism. It's just a way of mm-hmm. amusing ourselves. And you and I both know plenty of people who have taken curiosity and done nothing with it. So the question then is, how generous do you want to be? How generous do you want to be in sharing what you learn, sharing the questions you want to ask with people who will benefit from hearing them? Because most of us, I think, would be willing to overcome challenges in order to be generous to other people, which is different than doing it because you get a prize, which if that motivates you, do it that way. But the end result of shipping our work in a market economy is we shipped it and it helped somebody else. So we got to do it again. What's a good example in your life where curiosity has really served you well? I'm, I'm struggling because I have trouble thinking of times when it hasn't served me well. Mm. And that's just my narrative of the world. The number of times that I have gotten less, been less productive, been less helpful because I refuse to be curious is very, very low. That if you're just a cog in the machine, the biggest benefit you get is you don't have to wonder about whether you're complying or not. But there's no real other upsides. And To be curious is to enable us to make things better because we can show up in a way that the organizer didn't expect and shine a light on things that could be improved. We both know Mendel Conway, and uh, I spoke to Mendel about curiosity uh, a little while ago, and his narrative is that curiosity did get him into trouble a lot when he was young because he wasn't fitting in. He wasn't that cog in the wheel and he wasn't willing to just accept what the teachers in school were telling him. Okay, so first of all, few people have had as much privilege as I have in terms of getting the benefit of the doubt, and I don't deny that. But we have a semantic challenge here, which is there's a difference between being curious and what you ship and how you act once you have sniffed around and discovered something. And so, yeah, I got almost expelled from school more than once for provocatively asking questions because I shipped that work to deliberately make people in power uncomfortable. But that wasn't being curious. That was shipping provocative work. Those are two different things. So you don't necessarily consider... Because the way I've been thinking about it lately is I 
I've been thinking about curiosity as a posture and as a verb. So I don't necessarily know if I'm in my mind separating the two. I, I consider, yes, the curiosity is the kindling, as you said, the little bit of the fire. But I also consider it a just a way of being almost holistically so that I can in the moment say in relationships that matter to me, stop and ask myself, is the next thing I'm going to say or not say helpful in this situation? And that does take being curious in the moment. And to me, that takes a proactive stance. Yeah. I mean, I think I wanted to, I wanted to show you something here, but I don't think it's here anymore. So, um, Let's divide this into the two pieces. Then. Are you familiar with the drinking bird science experiment? It's a glass. Uh, I don't know what kind of bird that is. A, a, a flamingo that dips over and over again into a thing of all right. Most people have seen this experiment. And the question is, as you watch it drooping dip over and over again, how does it work? So I would like to argue that to be curious is to say to yourself when you see the drinking bird, how does it work? Because perpetual motion machines are impossible. How is it that it keeps going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth? Almost nobody looks at the drinking bird and asks, how does it work? That is indoctrination. That is you being told, you don't understand science. You don't understand refrigeration. You don't understand electricity. Just do what's convenient. You don't need to know why the light goes on when you open the fridge. It just does. So if we don't have curiosity, we can't do anything that is useful to the system because we forgot to ask the question. And I have done the drinking bird experiment with many, many kids and said, how does it work? And they'll look at it for a few seconds and almost all of them will say, I don't know, tell me. And they will be ready to write down the answer. So if it's on the test, they will get it right. And it breaks my heart because I just want to say, I have said, Let's figure it out. You can ask me tiny questions like, what is it made out of? So you can figure out using your curiosity how it works. But please don't ask for the explanation because mm -hmm. you've given up agency. So what your point is about being curious about our own feelings, metacognition, thinking about thinking, mm -hmm. understanding how to be mindful in the moment, these take a posture of curiosity. And then, the question is, what do we do with it? And I have seen many people who, I'm going to use a provocative phrase, have been too, to too much therapy, and they just like blurt out whatever they're curious about. And in our culture, that's just obnoxious. And it doesn't lead to the outcome that they might have sought because they're just, you know, incenting the other person to not engage with them. So... But leaving that part out, I think the first part is, where do we inquire? How do we inquire? Do we even think to inquire? That's curiosity. Do you have an anecdote that might demonstrate an unusual way that you've... I know you said that it's, it's just the way you are, your posture, but maybe to someone who doesn't necessarily consider herself or himself or themselves curious, what's an unusual anecdote do you think might kind of drive home Oh, now I see what that means. I, I don't think it's just the way I am. I think this is the work that I've chosen to do. I remember to this moment, the day I realized that it was my practice. And it was uh, 1982, 
two and I got my first job. They just installed a fax machine. They hadn't invented voicemail or email yet. And that was the 30th employee summer job. And I walked into the office and there was one of these plastic carousels and it had 30 slots on it. And each slot had someone's name affixed with a Dymo label maker. And what would happen is all day, if you were out, if someone called, they would leave a message and the receptionist would write it on a pink slip that said at the top, while you were out, in case you forgot what the slip was for. And it would say, Bob called, and they would put it in your slot. So when you got back from lunch or meetings, you would spin this thing and find your name. But the names were not in alphabetical order because they were affixed in the order you were hired. And then you would take your slips. And I walk in the first day and I see this thing. It is not hard to understand what the thing is, but it apparently was hard to be curious about how and why it was designed the way it was and how it worked. And what I did, this is the action part, not the curious part. Mm. What I did was I took a paperclip from the receptionist paperclip dispenser and put it next to my name. Because then I knew for the rest of the summer, I could just go spin to the paperclip, find my thing. Cost nothing, didn't hurt anybody. And within a week, this carousel was festooned with pipe cleaners and flags and different colored pipe <laughs> paper clips. So everyone could find their thing immediately. So did I add value? Yes, I did. Did I need special training to add this value? No. Did I need permission to add this value? No. If someone wasn't happy with what I had done, they could take the paperclip out. And did the whole thing start because I asked a few questions? Yes. The amazing thing, and the reason the anecdote is worth telling, is of the 30 people, five of them had completed advanced MBAs at some of the most famous business schools in the world. And none of them had been curious enough to ask the question that I asked. That doesn't mean I was better than Bill Larson, who went on to become a billionaire, but it means that I had a habit. And my habit was, this is new. How does it work? How could it be better? And I think anybody can develop that habit. Okay. So going back to the example that I gave in personal interactions, you said, if this is new, what if this is old? I've seen this before. And so I'm going to, I don't want to say fall into the trap of, but I, I think we do. Yeah. Or we're a little bit complacent when we don't say, and how, when we don't pause and say, how can I look at this differently? Yes. Brilliant. Brilliant. Because I fall into this trap all the time. It has to do with sunk costs. It has to do with conservation of energy. Sunk costs, because if we already made the decision, if we already decided to be with this person or have this kind of bicycle, we don't want to revisit it because we might have been wrong. That's a sunk cost. Mm. And second, conservation of energy, because if every single time I see my bicycle, I'm curious about every single thing in it, I'm never going to do anything else. Mm. So it's much easier to be curious about new things, but probably more important to be curious about old things. What about the relationship of being curious with perfectionism? Do you see one? Oh, well, perfectionism is a whole other category. Let's be clear. Quality is important, but quality and perfect are unrelated. That if I took a Lexus LS400, which is ranked as the uh, 
highest quality car in America and looked at any part of it with an electron microscope, I could show you it is not perfect. Perfect is a trap because perfect is a way to stall. That the reason to be a perfectionist is so that you will never ship the work. And if you don't ship the work, it's not your fault. You can't be blamed. Better to look for one more thing to complain about. And yet, even though the piano wasn't perfectly in tune, Keith Jarrett performed the Cole concert and it was extraordinary and it changed things. And yet, even though some of the notes maybe weren't exactly the notes he would have played if he had written everything down in advance, the fact that he was doing it in real time made it better. That if we listen to Take Five, what we hear is that Paul Desmond in the eighth bar probably was just a little out of tune. I'm glad they shipped the work anyway, because perfect isn't the point. The point is to matter. So you must be curious then to persist, to persevere, to keep practicing, even though you don't necessarily see a really huge reward. As long as I'm riffing on music. So let's think about Christian McBride trading fours at Lincoln Center. Some jazz musicians, because they gig so much, are phoning it in. They know how to quote themselves and they can do that without being present. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the gig, they just want to get paid and go home. And sometimes a jazz musician brings curiosity to the table. And the curiosity is, I wonder what would happen if I started with a G instead of a B here. Let's see. Let's start that process and see what happens. So I think curiosity in and of itself is at the heart of many forms of art, many forms of connection, many forms of life. And these are choices, but it is possible to be a productive cog in the system without being curious at all. So then I guess it depends on who's it for. Correct. Who is it for? I don't know if you can see behind me, but I have an original piece of art Mm -hmm. from an artist that I follow, I've been following for years. She painted uh, an original portrait of my two daughters and and the dog at that time. And I've kept in touch with her socially. And I saw this being created in real time on Instagram and it just called to me. And when it was done, I called her and I said, "It's, it's just my piece. So because we have this bit of a connection, this personal connection and Part of my story, my narrative is I don't need perfect things either. I actually want things that that are intimate, that make me feel connected to that person, that this is something this person really created from their, with the heart, with the soul, not just with the mind. And so she surprised me a few weeks later and sent me these three beautiful pieces. They're small, uh, eight by 10 pieces. And a card, a handwritten card, along with it, with her little doodle of her face. And essentially what she was saying is that she thought of me when with these three pieces because I'm very much into movement. And she described her process where she said that she just let the pencil doodle and guide. It's just kind of allowed herself to doodle and play. And from this doodling emerge these dancing figures. And so I have them kind of like art uh, museum style displayed in a grouping in one of my rooms. And so it just, to me, curiosity would not have 
a lack of curiosity would not have yielded that process of let's see what comes out of it. She didn't sit down and go, I'm going to doodle three three pencil compositions of women dancing or figures dancing. I, can we call this experimentation instead of curiosity? Hmm. What's the difference? I view the kind of experimentation that you just described as purely non-intellectual. There was no construct when she began. I view the kind of curiosity I call curiosity as I am outside of whatever thing I'm inquiring about. A system exists. Can I understand the elements of that system and what it might respond to? It can be about something else I am experiencing. But for me, curiosity is this level that is different from the flow of immersion in craft, Mm. right? That there's a step back of, I wonder. Curiosity usually for me begins with, I wonder. And I think that what you described is an intuitive craftsperson who said, here is some paper, here is a pencil. Without any narrative, without any attachment, without any direction, let me see what transpires. I think that's really valuable. I just don't know if I want to call that curiosity at the intellectual level that we have been discussing so far. Mm -hmm. A different flavor, maybe? Sure. Yeah. I mean, words are nothing but things we try to pin to emotions anyway. Is one capable of coaching curiosity in another human being so that they can achieve what you might see, potential. Do you think curiosity is a skill? Yes. Well, then you answered the question. Hmm. Right? Like if you want to learn diagnosis in medical school and it's taught properly, you are learning the skill of being curious as to why someone is ill. And we know that some people become great at diagnostics. And we also know that we can now teach a computer to do it really well as well, because it's a skill. And as long as we keep calling it some magic talent, it's going to be elusive. But if we realize it's a skill like juggling, well, then we can teach people how to do it. I would also say that being very, to kind of come back to the beginning, surrounding yourself, again, this is something that I've been really thinking about with intention, surrounding myself with people who inspire me to stretch outside of my comfort zone or to become better at at certain skills that I may be weaker in or need more work in. I would say that it can almost be a virtuous cycle. I'll give examples my daughters because I instilled the gift of curiosity or I allowed, I wanted them to be curious. They in turn, as they've gotten older, make me more curious, especially as culture is changing. I may not have grown up with certain concepts or um, or we could take the example of mental health for it, where we're having more dialogue about certain aspects of mental health or challenging even what normal means. My daughters have allowed me to be more inquisitive without feeling like I'm going to be punished for it. 
because that is how I felt for a very, very long time, even through medical school, where I would be punished for being too inquisitive. It was rather, you must know the right answer. Correct. Oh, medical school combined with the caste system, combined with so many other things in our culture, it's this systemic desire for power to be perpetuated. And often people who feel fragile think that uh, someone inquiring will soon lead to them being exposed as a fraud. And this is the main reason teenagers don't want parents to ask them about their day. Because a teenager is carrying around a very fragile cocoon of self-esteem that is based on nothing. But uh, as soon as inquiry arrives, they are worried that they will be seen for who they really are, which is a, uh, a babbling ball of insecurity. And so it's easier to just say, nothing, go away, I hate you, than it is to respond to the inquisitions that are coming. And the same thing's true, for example, for psychiatrists, because psychiatrists have no clue how the medicines work. None. And it's so much easier if you just say, how many pills did you say for me to take? Not, can you please explain the mechanism of why this is working and not that? Don't say that, because then you will be puncturing the, the system. And so curiosity must precede inquisitiveness, but it doesn't require inquisitiveness. It doesn't require you to inquire. You can only inquire when you have earned a safe zone to do so. Mm. Safe because you feel safe, that mm -hmm. you have enough standing, and safe in that the other person feels safe that their uh, mythology will not be destroyed. And then scarcity versus abundance mindset. And specifically mm -hmm. why I'm saying that is, so I'm picturing myself in the classroom and everyone is under this immense time crunch. It's a choice, but nevertheless, it's a time crunch. So if you were to ask questions, you're derailing mm -hmm. the class, the time. Oh, we have to get through this amount of work in this time. That was very difficult to navigate for me. I, I would say it was, I always felt very pressured to hurry up. I even noticed this in, and the reason why I'm saying this is because you mentioned it being a practice and, and having this work across your, in your life as, as a tool in your lifestyle, something that you practice, a tool. I noticed that this narrative of, I don't have enough time can even seep into other things. Oh, yeah. So my husband, absolutely. My husband the other day is making a sandwich for lunch and he is whipping around the kitchen and I happen to come down and I look at him and I go, what's the matter? Or is there a meeting you need? And he said, I just need to get to the next thing. I have so much to do. And it was just a moment for me of realization where this can just be so insidious and seep into your into your life. And yeah, I just found it very fascinating. It's beautiful. It's brilliant. This needs to go in your book, which is that mindfulness and curiosity usually are good friends. And that because in that moment, your husband had a checklist mindset of getting mm -hmm. it over with, 
-hmm. He wasn't willing to be mindful or curious. And that's totally appropriate in small doses. But if we spend our days doing that, then that's how we're spending our weeks. And then we're just in a race to get it over with and be dead. Yeah, a checklist to do's. Every day is something to do. So the last time we talked on the previous podcast I had, the Yogi MD podcast, I asked you what it means to you to be healthy. What is your personal definition of being healthy? And you responded by saying that it certainly doesn't mean living an unlimited or quantity life. It's more about quality. Has that changed? Oh, it's so complicated. We get Mm. older, right? Um, I have not changed at all in the direction toward you need to be unlimited. But I think I am more aware than ever that new limits sometimes don't arise right on schedule. Any last minute thoughts, words of wisdom regarding curiosity? I wasn't kidding about your book. I am very curious to read it. You're not the first person who has has uh, said that. And I must say, I was in writing a community for a little while, and I started a passion project because I feel like it's a good place to start for me. Uh, are you aware of Henry Louis Gates' work? Yes. I can't tell you that I'm personally familiar with it, but I'm aware of it. Sure. One of the things I've been, and I, I know we're just at, at time, but I do want to share this. One of the things that I'm very passionate about that it's finding your roots. And it's the typical, generally speaking, the narrative is when he's able to trace the the um, genetics or the genealogy back many, many, or centuries sometimes, but many years more readily in um, people of Caucasian descent rather than African descent. Okay, so that's, yeah. yes, we know that. But I must say that a gift that has revealed itself from podcasting since 2018 is that it's not about the numbers or the likes or or getting them out there. It can become, it can unfold and reveal different things. And for me, it has been, it is a tool where I can record my own family history. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to use a couple of my podcast episodes, well, one for my parents to record their journey here. They immigrated from Haiti. So I'm putting down my own roots. I'm finding my own roots that way and preserving that for future generations. And it also allowed me then to go, oh, I could record some of our family recipes in the form of a book with companion podcast episodes with video content. And this can be a project that my daughter and I and my mom do together. And so we've been exploring that. So that is going to be my first book. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. You keep turning on lights for people and I'm so happy to know you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, Seth. I really appreciate our talk today. lovely woman who would enjoy practicing yoga with us from the comfort of her own home? We foster a peaceful, happy, and safe space in our online yoga classes. Community and relationships matter, so there are no more than 10 women per class. 
And because we wanted to be a good fit, the first month is free for new students. So what are you waiting for? Join today. Book at npkhealthintegration.com. Hope to see you soon.